Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Progressive Britain History Project, part of the Progressive Britain podcast. In each episode, we look at different aspects of the Labour Party's past with the aim of promoting a clearer understanding of its contested history, perhaps busting a few myths on the way, introducing some new ways of thinking and making connections between Labour's history, its present and future. Uh, my name is Stephen Fielding. I'm Emeritus Professor of Political History at the University of Nottingham. And my co-host is Professor Laura Beers, uh, Professor of History at the American University, Washington. Um, hello, Laura. Hello, Steve. Hello, listeners. Uh, today, we are going um, to be joined by Professor... Uh, Tim Bale, who's Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University and is currently um, going around uh, the country um, generating lots of enthusiasm for his new book, um, The Conservative Party After Brexit, uh, which has been widely and ecstatically reviewed um, across all major media outlets. So congratulations uh, to Tim for that. I haven't got a copy yet, but I have got a copy of your of your your preceding book, The Conservative Party from Thatcher to Cameron, which came out in 2011, and uh, that must be the standard work on that. So I'm assuming your latest book will do that. Um, so hello, Tim. Uh, hello, Stephen. Hello, Laura. Now we've got Tim on because. It would be it's an interesting kind of thing to talk about um, the conservative enemy. Um, uh, the the Conservative Party has been historically or is historically the most probably the most successful electoral organisation. Um, it's usually claimed like in the world sometimes, but certainly in Europe, but definitely in Britain. Um, and and Tim's book's got some interesting on the basis of some of the reviews I've been reading. Tim's book has got some interesting things to say about about the Conservatives and how um, Labour might think about the, the Conservative enemy, whether it's the same kind of Conservative enemy um, and what forces it can rely on to defeat the Labour Party. And he's apparently, he's not totally pessimistic that the Conservative Party is doomed to failure at the next election. So we can talk about some of that a bit, a bit later on, but I thought the first the first sort of, um, sort of good way of 
sort of jumping in, into the subject about about the conservative enemy and why it's been why they've been so successful um, is is that you know if you're just looking at the 20th century even you know the 90 parts of the 19th century up to the present day um, I mean it's it's indisputable, isn't it, Tim, that the Conservatives have been the most electorally successful party. Whether whether they're standing against the Liberals, if if the Liberals are, are their main um, kind of um, competitor, or when it's Labour, the Conservatives tend to win, don't they? They do. I mean, they've had their ups and downs, it has to be said. I mean, if you look at the 1920s, things, um, you know, batted back and forth between the Conservatives and uh, the Labour Party. And then, of course, they have had some disasters and we can talk perhaps a bit about those as well. You know, 1945, obviously, uh, to some extent, the 1960s was a bit of a lost decade for the Conservatives. And then again, the end of the 1990s, they lost that huge uh, landslide election in 1997 to the Labour Party and then didn't get back in till 2010. And at that point, only in coalition with the Liberal Democrats. But certainly, I guess, since 2015, although they haven't necessarily um, covered themselves in electoral glory, for example, you know, they they didn't get a majority in, in 2017 after winning in 2015. Uh, they came back with a bang in 2019, winning an 80-seat majority. And if you look at Obviously, the period, you know, the last hundred or so years, um, you know, you'll see that they've uh, governed uh, the UK for, you know, the vast majority of, of that century. Yeah, I mean, can, I think it was Tony Blair, but he was taking it from the title of a book. He's, he referred to the 20th century as a conservative century and said it was his mission. I mean, he had many missions, didn't he? Um, it was his mission to ensure that the 21st century was Labour's century, which, you know, to be fair, isn't working out terribly well <laughs> at the moment. Um, but are there, I mean, are there any are there any kind of aspects to that success that you would want to identify? I mean, is it is there something about the inherent nature of the Conservative Party itself that that sort of promotes this success? Yeah, I mean, I think you'd have to say that the Tories do have, if you like, a, a will to power in the sense that, well, I mean, office uh, in office, I mean, they'll say or, or they'll do practically anything to stay there, uh, which does make them, you know, pretty ruthless and, and highly adaptable. Um, I mean, they're not quite as good as they used to be in opposition, I should say, because I think they're rather more of an ideological party than they once were. So it does take them longer than it used to, um, to, to wake up and smell the coffee, as uh, Lord Michael Ashcroft, uh, a Tory peer, once famously put it. Um, I think the electoral system is obviously an advantage, uh, you know, for both main parties, but for the Conservatives in particular at the moment, because the, the, the electoral bias, as political scientists put it, in the system is, is towards the Conservatives at the moment. And that's because their votes more efficiently distributed uh, than Labour's. Um, Labour tends to pile up pointlessly huge majorities in uh, in a few um, big cities, whereas the Conservatives' vote is is better spread, if you like, in smaller towns and, and rural areas. Uh, it doesn't help either, I think, that the opposition parties rarely seem to realise the full potential of tactical voting uh, against the Conservatives, although that's something that you know might um, feature in, in the next election, just as it did, for example, in 1997. And I think actually you can overdo the idea of a, a kind of split progressive opposition always helping the Tories to victory. And I, I think one of the uh, mistakes people make, for example, about the 1980s is that somehow Mrs Thatcher was only able to win because, uh, you know, the Liberal uh, 
Party, uh, Social Democrat Alliance um, split the vote. Uh, otherwise, you know, Labour would have been in a much better position or, or the Alliance would have been in a much better position. I'm not sure that that's true. Um, I think I think you also have to look at the party's ability to 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 win the votes of of culturally conservative working class voters. Um, you know, they 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 emphasise policies that that are a mixture, if you like, of aspiration and an authoritarianism. And and conservatives seem to have the ability to do that without, for the most part, alienating um, their core middle class vote. Although I would say that that's getting a little bit more difficult to do now because many more of those core middle class voters are actually graduates with with socially liberal views to match, uh, and uh, the conservatives are also for fear of losing votes to the to the populist radical right. You know, UKIP, the Brexit Party, Reform UK, uh, they've decided to to go down, uh, if you like, a more culturally conservative anti woke route. Uh, that that won't necessarily appeal to some of those those more uh, liberally minded conservative voters, and then I guess uh, I mean the Conservative Party could make an argument for being, if you like, the party of English nationalism, and of course England's where the vast majority of voters in the UK actually live. Um, you could also argue, and perhaps we can come on to this. They've been quite lucky with their enemies. Um, Labour are quite good at electing rubbish leaders, <laughs> and and the Lib Dems. Uh, approved, you know, fantastically naive when when thinking about going into coalition with the Conservatives or Labour in 2010. They went with the, the Tories, which I don't think was too good for them. And then I guess finally, um, I'd say, you know, we ought to think about the media because the right wing print media in this uh, country is dominant. And I think it sets the agenda uh, for a lot of the public service broadcasters. Uh, and I think in its handling of the economy, which it treats, you know, like a household in the way that Margaret Thatcher did, means that it is actually quite advantageous for, if you like, fiscal conservatives with a small C rather than, if you like, you know, Keynesian, um, you know, high public spending um, politicians uh, from the left. Well, that is a lot to unpack, Tim. I mean, you've just given us a sort of whole cornucopia um, of reasons for the conservative ascendancy. But I wanted to both sort of focus on one initially, but also rewind to Steve's initial premise about the Conservative Party being the winningest party, um, at least in Europe and perhaps anywhere. And whether it's a sort of overstatement driven from the fact that democracy has a long history in this country, or at least something approximating democracy. Um, and really, as you said, the 20th century has been the was the conservative century. But in the 19th century, against a liberal party, particularly before new liberalism, that wasn't a class party, um, really that had ideological splits, but was targeting voters um, within a limited electorate, admittedly, that had a socioeconomic profile not wildly different from those being targeted by conservatives. You had a more even match between periods of liberal government and periods of conservative government. And whether really one of the key reasons in the 20th century that the conservatives dominated is, as you said, you know, they had a middle-class core, but were able to pick away working-class voters. And the Labour Party, in contrast, had a working-class core and was less successful at picking away middle-class voters. And and perhaps this, um, to go back to your um, Blair quote, Steve, is, is what Tony Blair was determined to change. And, you know, while it hasn't been remarkably successful so far, as Tim has said, you know, educated graduates increasingly are swinging towards Labour. And is maybe this, you know, as demographic shift, something we are going to realize in the 21st century, that the Labour Party will cease to be 
a working class party, but will it become maybe, you know, an urban party um, in contrast to a more rural and suburban natural conservative constituency? And would a shift away from class politics, you think, maybe end the 20th century's period of conservative ascendancy? Yeah, I mean, that is a big question, but it's also a very good question. I mean, I think uh, the Labour Party obviously in some ways now is a middle class party and indeed it has to be both parties have to be because uh, the middle class um, voter dominates um in in the UK i mean if you if you look at people's objective class status and i know there's quite a lot of debate around subjective versus objective but you know most voters would be objectively middle class even if um Bizarrely enough, a lot of people seem to think that they are still working class. Um, so I, I don't think there is that much of a future in in class politics. But on the other hand, I think identity politics writ large could be a bit of a dead end, actually, for both parties. Uh, I, I think the Labour Party uh, has to be extremely careful that it doesn't get pigeonholed, as some on the right would like it uh, to be pigeonholed, as the party of the kind of socially liberal uh, middle class graduates because although you know they make up a fair proportion of the population, there's not enough of them in the right places. Uh, and this comes back to your point about cities to actually uh, give Labour much of a chance of forming a majority. It does need to win uh, voters who you know haven't necessarily gone to university, don't necessarily uh, hold some of those socially liberal views, and who live in those small towns uh, and those suburbs. So uh, I think just as the Conservatives have to be very careful before heading off in this populist radical right direction, uh, I think the the Labour Party has to be careful that it doesn't, if you like, make the same uh, mistake in, in kind of mirror image uh, and go for the the you know, sort of socially liberal identity side of that that um, identity politics divide. I mean, when, when you ran through some of the, um, well, a very comprehensive list as to why the Conservatives have been so successful, I was beginning to think, well, how come Labour's ever won an election? You know, given given all of that, I mean, there was sort of, you know, as, as social scientists talk about structure and agency, the, the Conservatives seem to have got it all sorted out, um, both in its own, you know, the sense of what the party's about, its will to power, its pragmatism, and and when you, you know, you talked about just the nature of the electoral system and through happenstance, if if nothing else, um, that's it just benefits the, the Conservatives just just presently. And I think has mostly benefited the Conservatives, the, the first past the post system, although Labour's had its had its sort of um, certain moments. Um, so, I mean, the obvious question then, I suppose, is, well, given given all those advantages that the Conservatives have have enjoyed, how on earth is Labour ever? Uh, managed uh, to get into office, and and it, I mean, there are like three moments, um, aren't there? In, certainly in the post-war, in the, the the war and the post-war period, um, that that Labour has managed to do that, and usually, well, in fact, invariably, it's been after a prolonged period of conservative or conservative-dominated, um, dominating government, hasn't it? So, 1945, 1964, and 1997. Um, I wonder if you see. A pattern, um, whether they're just their three separate moments, or is there a pattern by which Labour um, can end um, the Conservative hegemony, albeit not necessarily for very long in some in some cases? Well, I mean, I think obviously, you know, if you're looking for reasons why Labour wins in um, those um, particular uh, points in time, 
I mean, it's difficult perhaps to generalize from the the wartime because uh, arguably, you know, that is a very um, special set of circumstances. Um, But I I think, you know, we can't completely discount that. But I mean, if we look at 64, say, and and, and 97, I mean, I think it's a combination, isn't it, of, of, um, you know, internal conservative problems and, and, you know, a rather more kind of positive um, Labour message as well as kind of events, dear boy events, because as you say, Labour have often come in after a prolonged period of conservative rule. And there's an extent to which, you know, the, there is a kind of implosion of conservatism after a, a long period, you know, whereby they become, if you like, overwhelmed by sleaze, by the feeling that, you know, they've been there too long for all the good that they've done. And, and it's time for change, time for somebody else to have a go. And that somebody else is, is Labour. Um I mean, I think we can we can understate the the effect of Labour putting the boot in <laughs> effectively. I mean, I think Harold Wilson and Tony Blair, uh, in their individual ways, were actually very good at taking the Conservative governments uh, that they faced apart in opposition. I think they were, you know, highly skilled rhetoricians uh, and, and actually, you know, pretty ruthless. Uh, and you know, I know Steve that you know a lot more about the sixties than I do, and and. I expect you would you would agree that that Wilson was was really you know a master at that, um, but I mean I think it's also true um, that that Labour and and I guess this is to coin a bit of a cliche now does have to weave a kind of narrative often around kind of owning the future, whereas the Conservative Party is you know then seen as the party of the past, uh, and I think you know that characterises sixty four, ninety seven, and indeed forty five. Obviously, I mean, I think in you know 1997 there was also something else, and I guess this is quite important for the Labour Party and something they do seem to have trouble with, and that is um, giving the impression that they both get and like the voters that they need to flip away from the Tories. Um, I mean, I think sometimes it's quite easy for the Conservatives to argue that that Labour doesn't actually like. Um, Britain and doesn't actually like the British people. And I think, you know, that is a, a tall order um, for a party that does have a obviously fairly fundamental critique of the way that British society is run. I've got a favourite fact, uh, which um, in 1964, Labour's vote was actually less than it was in 1959. Um, and and the reason why Labour got its very small, well, it, Yes, a very small majority in 1964. It sort of crept in was because the Liberals took votes off the Conservatives, um, and and thereby delivered Labour votes, uh, Labour Labour seats. And and my second favourite fact is is from an NOP poll from 1997, where 46% of those asked uh, basically said, you know, we're just so fed up with the Conservatives, and Labour couldn't be any worse. Which I mean. There's a kind of a, an interesting point, and and it is it is the point one of the two points you mentioned that you know that basically the con- people have to get fed up of the conservatives before they even think, or at least a significant proportion of the electorate have to be fed up with the conservatives for all kinds of reasons before they even think about voting Labour, and then they don't always necessarily vote Labour. Um, they might vote for the Liberals or the Liberal Democrats, and obviously ninety seven, I don't think that was the case, but Labour's majority was certainly helped. Uh, by people voting for the Liberal Democrats rather than the Conservatives and didn't want to vote for Labour, maybe. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and also by, by tactical voting. So you're quite right. The Liberal Democrats drained votes, as it were, that might otherwise have gone to the Conservatives. But there also was a, a degree of, of, of tactical voting then, you know, of, of, of people realising, if you like, they're on the progressive side of politics and, and giving their vote to whichever of the two progressive parties, if you like, were most likely to defeat the Conservatives. So, yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, the, the Labour's relationship with the Liberals or the Liberal Democrats is... I mean, it can play a role and may indeed play a role in the in the forthcoming election, doesn't it? And it, but it's not really helped by the electoral system. If 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 part of what Labour is trying sometimes tries to, and it did, and it did in 1945. I mean, it, there's loads of Labour um, election material saying you've got to vote straight left. Don't don't mess around voting for the Liberals. If you want to get rid of this lot, you've got to vote for the Labour Party. Um, and they had to fight, you know, some people's desire to, to, to still vote for the Liberals. But Labour's relationship with the Liberals or the Liberal Democrats has has kind of sometimes, well, it's got to negotiate that relationship, hasn't it? If it, if it really wants to end a, a conservative period of government. Yeah, I mean, in both senses. I mean, I think pre-election, it, it you know, it really could do with some tactical voting, to be honest, um, you know, both to allow the Liberal Democrats to pick up, say, 15 to 20 seats in the mainly southern half of of England, especially around um, London, you know, the west of London, uh, perhaps. And then, you know, there there are a handful of seats where, you know, Liberal Democrats voting Labour would be uh, quite handy. But actually, it's the Liberal Democrats who will um, benefit most from that kind of um, tactical voting, which, of course, probably means that that Labour aren't going to um, put as much emphasis on it as as perhaps uh, they might. Uh, And of course, there's also the post-electoral um, position because it's going to be quite difficult, I would have thought, for Labour to um, win a, a, at least a large overall majority, if if any majority at all. So it might well need um, to think about a, a coalition with the Liberal Democrats or at least support from the Liberal Democrats from, from if you like, the outside of government. And, you know, we saw in, in 2010, really, the, the relationship between the Liberal Democrats uh, you know, under Nick Clegg and and you know the Labour Party under Gordon Brown was pretty poor. Had it been a little bit better, uh, we might just might have seen a, a different coalition uh, take power in in 2010. And then, of course, the relationship got even worse once the Liberal Democrats had decided to go into coalition with the with the Conservatives in 2010. And you know, there are a lot of Labour people who you know will never forgive the Liberal Democrats for doing that. Or I, I get the sense now that actually that's beginning to to wane and probably a good thing too because, you know, to be honest, Labour does need some of its voters in the South uh, to, to vote for the Lib Dems, uh, uh, as I said. So, yeah, that, that relationship is an important one and it's not one that we often uh, focus on, but I think it's going to be vital to the next election given how tight it could be. Well, given how tight it could be, I mean, we've talked a lot about the Liberal Party which, of course, um, particularly in the 70s and 80s, sort of was a crucial factor. But the Liberal Party, not on the local level and not in parts um, of the Southwest in particular, but has you know become a much more marginal force since the decision to go into coalition with the Conservatives. And it's perhaps a more relevant question when we think about tight elections and potential coalitions, the very tricky question of what happens with the SNP potentially and Labour's desire to not touch that with a barge pole now, but the possibility in the same way that you had the Conservatives propped up briefly by Theresa May's um, agreement with the DUP with a national party on a small scale in a very tight parliament. 
And how, if at all, does labor handle that in advance of an election? Or do they just say, we stay far, far away from that until it becomes potentially something we have to deal with? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the latter. I think you're absolutely right that Labour really doesn't want a repetition of those posters that we saw um, when Ed Miliband was leader of the, the Labour leader in, in the SNP leader's pocket. Um, you know, how many votes they actually swung, who knows? But, it, you know, it's, it's not a great memory for a lot of Labour people. And they certainly don't want to be seen, especially now that the SNP are in so much trouble in terms of, you know, allegations of corruption, et cetera, et cetera, as being too close to, to the SNP. And of course, in some ways, the SNP is much more difficult to do a deal with than uh, the DUP in the sense that, you know, to, to, to deal with the DUP, all the Conservatives had to do was bung them a lot of cash and, and promise not to sell out Northern Ireland. Well, I mean, they arguably didn't necessarily keep that promise. But mm-hmm. uh, but anyway, um, you know, whereas a deal with the SNP might involve, you know, a, a demand from the SNP for a referendum on, you know, Scottish independence again. And that's really not something that Labour want to get into. I think the advantage for Labour, however, is that they know that the SNP cannot be seen to be um, propping up a Conservative government in any way. So uh, I think, you know, Labour probably has got the SNP where it wants it. It would like to win some seats off the SNP, whether it can win more than sort of 10, 12 and, you know, get into the sort of 20 plus uh, remains to be seen. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, that is another relationship that, that the Labour Party um, has to manage. I guess what I would say, however, is that, you know, although uh, you know, both of those relationships with the Lib Dems, with um, the SNP are going to be quite important. Uh, in a way, the Labour Party needs to keep I- its eyes on the prize and think about, you know, what it takes to to actually critique the Conservative government in a way that's going to, um, if you like, amplify the feeling that Steve was talking about um, before, uh, you know, that, that really this government's been in power for too long and we just need a change. And I think there are things that, uh, Labour oppositions, you know, when we talk about kind of patterns um, from the past, uh, you know, have done and, and can be replicated. I mean, most obviously, for example, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the Conservative governments do have a tendency to, to overpromise and, and underdeliver, if you like. And I think there is a mismatch between the rhetoric and, and the reality very often, particularly when it comes to public services like schools and hospitals and, and the police. And that's something I think Labour can really get into. Um, you know, uh, uh, and you know, a skillful Labour leader, I think, would be majoring uh, on all that and repeating it uh, ad nauseam. And I think one of the problems always with oppositions is that they worry that the electorate, or at least the media, is going to get bored. Uh, and instead of um, you know banging on and on and on and on and on about the same thing until people get the message, they do tend to sort of flip from one. Uh, critique to the other, and I think you know Keir Starmer's got to be very, very careful about about doing that. So, do you think that, in a sense, despite all the flack the parties received, that this spate of negative ad campaigning that really is focused on not things will only get better, or you know we're going to deliver a new and different and brighter future, but this is what the government has done to screw things up for the past decade and a half, is is the right idea in terms of just hammering home like a blunt instrument, a, a message of don't forget the way these guys have overpromised and underdelivered, as you said. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously, you know, there's been a lot of controversy about one particular uh, attack ad um, where, you know, Rishi Sunak was essentially accused of, you know, not wanting to 
um, jail um, child sex offenders. And I think you know that that was going too far because it, it simply didn't resonate with people's views of of Rishi Sunak. Um, but uh, having said that, I think as as you suggest, some of the you know the negative attack ads uh, you know will hit home, and um, particularly actually some of the personalised ones about Rishi Sunak's fortune, as long as the, the emphasis is always on he's so fabulously rich, he can't possibly understand, you know, your everyday struggles. Uh, I, I think that does does resonate. But but yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, what Rishi Sunak, the, the Conservative Prime Minister, is obviously going to try and do is to try and suggest that somehow he is the change and that, um, you know, he's leading a very different Conservative Party from the one that uh, essentially, you know, messed up the economy uh, big time, has uh, undertaken this, you know, mad Brexit experiment that doesn't seem to be working out uh, very well and has left the, the National Health Service uh, and indeed the police and education uh, on its knees uh, and can't cope with some of the public sector strikes that are to some extent a consequence uh, of that. So, I mean, there is a lot of talk about Keir Starmer needing to present this positive vision. And I, I guess I've already said that, you know, one of the things that Wilson and, and, and Blair were able to do was present that positive vision at the same time as as, as putting the boot in, if you like. But I, I think sometimes um, people do overstate the extent to which uh, there has to be a, a huge, inspiring, positive message. I mean, you know, it's it, it, we could do with one, I guess, the most Labour people would say. But, you know, I think probably uh, emphasising what the government's got wrong is, in the end, more important. Mm. I mean, I, I would say um, that Labour does have a number of positive visions. Um, I mean, it's got more positive visions than you can sort of shake a stick at, really, um, you know, with the five missions and and all of that, but it, they're not seemingly landing um, especially well. And that, that may be because of the nature of the electorate now. They're just very mistrustful of, of politicians generally, um, and so they're not really taking it very seriously. Or it could be to do with the delivery, and they're, they're kind of, it's, it's a kind of maybe obscure sort of positive vision. I don't know. But one of the things, um, at least if we're talking about the present moment, which does echo all those other moments when Labour has gotten has got back into office, a long-term Conservative office. One reason why they've failed to do that, even though there have been these long periods, they've just got even longer, like in 1992. The Conservatives have got this facility, it seems, I mean, whether you, you agree or not, to be able to um, reinvent themselves while in government. Um, rather than just simply exhaust themselves. So, you know, in the 50s, you, you start off with Churchill, but you end up with Alec Douglas Hume. Um, you start off with um, with Thatcher, but you end up with Major. Actually, that's that was kind of unusual, but, but Major was able in 1992 to do something that I guess Rishi Sunak is hoping to do, which is to sort of say, I'm, I'm the new guy. There has been a change in government. You don't really need to change things. And of course, you know, the Sunak, Situation. So, mate, it's, it's Labour's um, kind of nailing of Sunak. Without, I mean, that the first one, the first advert was let's 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 agree, slightly contentious. But but the rest of them are basically nailing him um, to the Conservative record since 2010. Um, do you think that's something that's they've actually picked up on? They're actually doing well. Just to come back on this, as the you know the. Of, amongst the group of us, the one who works on the earliest period of the 20th century. But I think we should not also discount the extreme success of the Labour Party in doing this to Winston Churchill, right? 
He had been this revered war leader um, and seen as the kind of man of the moment. Atlee had worked with him closely and made clear his personal respect for him. Um, And yet the Labour Party did a very good job of sort of saying, let's put aside all the things that we like about Churchill and we all like them about Churchill. But remember the Tory party of the 1930s and 1920s, and then also of kind of drawing a long line, particularly since Churchill was out of government for much of the 30s, to his complicity in the return to the gold standard, the general strike, um, the policies of the conservative government just on the eve of the depression and saying, so he's complicit with all of these failures of the 20s and 30s. And that positioning arguably is most, it's, it's the biggest tightrope act and the most successful one in the 45 election. And so it's not something that's coming in new with Wilson or, um, you know, being done sort of spectacularly by, by Blair vis-a-vis major, who's a weaker opponent by far and away than, um, than Churchill. Right. Um, And so, you know, there is a long history of kind of labor taking these conservative leaders who, you know, have inherited government, reinvented themselves, tried to dissociate themselves from the sins of the past and and nailing them to that to that mast, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, obviously, in some ways, Churchill's rather long career gave them a little bit more ammunition than they've got with Rishi Sunak, who, who kind of rose without trace in some ways because Dominic Cummings wanted to get rid of the... Uh, Chancellor, uh, you know, after Boris Johnson won that election. Um, and, and Rishi Sunak has got some advantages with the public in the sense that he is associated with furlough during the um, COVID pandemic, which obviously kept a lot of businesses and, and a lot of, uh, you know, people afloat uh, during that time. Uh, but he has got some you know, major flaws that, that the um, Labour Party are um, trying to attack. I, I think that's right. And, and, and I think... One thing that your uh, comment made me realise was, of course, that um, it's one thing to, to you know, to some extent, you know, uh, admit that you know, a, a particular leader, you know, has some things going for him. But you can also obviously draw attention to the fact that all the people behind him or all the people with him uh, are, you know, not the same as him uh, and not necessarily as as admirable as him. Now, I, I don't know the extent to which the Labour Party can, as you said, um, they did with Churchill, um, you know, admit some of the, uh, the the good things about Rishi Sunak. I, I'm not sure that they're they're really going to do that. Um, I mean, in some ways, that will be quite a powerful way of doing it. Admit that he's got some advantages, but then take him to the cleaners on on other aspects of his uh, personality uh, and his record. I mean, I think in some ways, one of the one of the problems is that uh, a lot of the things that Rishi Sunak could be um, blamed for revolve around Brexit, actually, and of course that's something that the Labour Party doesn't want to talk about. Um, so that you know, to to uh, remind people that um, Rishi Sunak was an avid Brexiteer, uh, and you know some of the problems that our economy has run into uh, stem from Brexit. You know, put two and two together uh, and, and make four in that respect uh, are kind of out of bounds for the Labour Party simply because they they really don't want to mention the B word. Uh, so that there is a sort of elephant in the room all the time, I think, in at the next election, um, which, you know, neither party, I suspect, are, are going to tackle. Now, in terms of like looking forward a little bit um, to next year, this is always um, a sort of political historian's graveyard looking into the future. Um, what 
your book suggests that the Conservative Party has changed quite dramatically um, in recent in recent years. Um, I mean, has that made it an easier um, enemy for Labour to to overcome? I mean, what does does it? What what's Labour's chances really of of finally ending um, what will be then fourteen years of Conservative misrule, as I'm sure it will be called? Um, and and is it to do with the nature? Of, does the nature the changing nature of the Conservative Party make it any easier, or or actually a more robust enemy? I think that's a really good question. I mean, what the book um, argues is that essentially what we're seeing is a transformation of the Conservative Party from a kind of mainstream centre-right outfit to a kind of ersatz populist radical right outfit, um, partly to see off the challenge from UKIP slash the Brexit Party slash um, Reform UK. Uh, and I guess there's a supplementary question as to whether that transformation is permanent or whether it's just another iteration of this, you know, hyper adaptability of, of the Conservative Party. But I mean, with regard to whether it makes it easier or more difficult for the Labour Party, I mean, I, I think in some ways both, because I, I think the, 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 you know, the populist radical right, anti-woke culture war politics is a way of appealing to and keeping hold of some of those voters who flipped from the Labour Party to the Conservatives in 2017 and, uh, and 2019. I mean, undoubtedly, you know, stop the boats uh, has resonance for those voters. Uh, and if the Conservatives keep banging on about that, then it may keep some of them uh, in in the fold. Uh, and it's, I think, you know, as we know from, from the Labour Party's quite recent history, it does have a problem with immigration. It doesn't quite know how to uh, counter the Conservatives' attack on on that particular issue. Uh, but on the other hand, and, and this comes back to, to some of what we were talking about earlier, uh, it is quite off-putting to quite a lot of voters, um, particularly in you know the the, the, the kind of bigger cities and, and slightly bigger towns, uh, and that might um, redound to, to Labour's favour. I think the other thing I would say is that um, you know this sort of populist radical right turn is accompanied however, by, uh, you know, continuing enthusiasm for kind of fiscal conservatism, for Thatcherism, if you like, uh, and, uh, you know, a continuing tendency on the Conservative Party to um, idolise, iconise, um, you know, what they perceive as Margaret Thatcher's, you know, smaller state, um, you know, lower spending, lower tax um, policies. So although the Conservatives are going to find it, I think, quite difficult to, you know, give people a massive tax cut, uh, and they're going to find it quite difficult to, to to cut spending. I think the fact that they're not increasing spending as much as I think most people would feel it needs to be increased, uh, and the fact that they're doing that in order to produce, you know, some some tax cuts, probably for you know quite often the the, the better off, um, probably helps Labour uh, in that respect. So I, I don't think the Conservative Party is is perhaps um, uh, as adaptable as it as it was simply because. You know, it's it's going down this populist radical right path on the one hand, and it's still stuck in that kind of Thatcherite groove uh, on the other, which means it, it can't respond to, if you like, external conditions in the way that perhaps conservative um, governments used to in the past. Can I, can I ask you a question, Tim, about this characterization of the shift, which is something clearly also observable in the US, where I'm based these days, um, towards a kind of what you characterize as a cultural politics, a populism that's sort of woke. 
And then you brought up anti-immigrant policy. And the question I have, and I mean, this similarly has an analog in the US, right, um, is that anti-immigrant policy is both cultural politics, but it's also economic politics, right? And there's a tendency of left oppositions on both sides of the Atlantic to just assume that to be anti-immigrant is to be racist, right? And that's how you explain what drives anti-immigrant policy. And it obviously is part of it, right? But there's also kind of deep-rooted fears about the economic implications of immigration that you have than these sort of right-wing populist parties playing to, which is very different than some of this other, what you characterize as kind of anti-woke politics, which really there's no associated economic undercurrent in any meaningful way to being anti-trans or, I mean, abortion politics doesn't resonate in Britain the way it does in the US, you know, but I mean, some of these cultural politics don't have an economic correlate or in the economic core to them. And I guess, do you distinguish between them in talking about this shift within the Conservative Party as you perceive it? Well, I mean, I think you've raised a really interesting point there uh, about immigration politics, because there has been a shift in the UK in the sense that all the public opinion research suggests that actually people are rather more relaxed about immigration on the economic front than perhaps they used to be, um, partly because obviously we've got such uh, high employment uh, at the moment, so there doesn't seem to be much threat to, to people's jobs. And in fact, you know, we, we, we are sucking in uh, a lot of overseas labour now, albeit not from the, the EU. Um, that doesn't seem to be now what's driving people's uh, anxiety uh, about migration. Uh, that seems to have um, defaulted back to worries about uh, asylum seeking, uh, you know, and supposedly kind of, you know, bogus refugees, et cetera, et cetera. So you, we do seem to have a shift um, of, of opinion, which, uh, you know, suggests that the majority of people now are more comfortable, if you like, with economic migration than they are with, um, you know, the, the cultural impacts. Although, you know, it, it is, as you say, quite difficult to separate. I mean, I think, you know, the, your, your point about... Um, uh, anti-woke politics or culture war politics is a really interesting one because I, I think in as much as there is probably a market among some of those, you know, working class, less educated, cultural conservative voters for the kind of stop the boats rhetoric and the, uh, and the you know, keep the statues rhetoric, etc. Uh, I don't think there is anything like as much traction as some conservatives would like to think when it comes to you know trans issues, um, for example, uh, and nowhere near the kind of um, uh, traction that there might be in, in the United States, and, and you know you will have a, a better take on that than I will do. But I I suspect that's something to do with the very big difference between the two countries in terms of religious observance and and religious faith. And I mean, for most UK um, uh, citizens. Uh, you know, the, the trans issue just is not a kind of existential one. Um, it, it's more a kind of live and let live one. Um, you know, it, it doesn't really challenge anybody's religious beliefs because so few people have religious beliefs. Whereas I think in the United States, maybe it, it's more of an issue partly because of, uh, you know, the religious dimension. So Certainly. I mean, I saw, um, I mean, Lee Anderson, the deputy um, chair of the party, said somewhere that, um, if they were going to win the next election, Conservatives, you know, it'd be thanks to tr the trans issue <laughs> and and I think the boats. And I've I've seen um, online, you know, um, sort of video recordings of uh, 
conservative meetings, lo- lo- you know, local conservative sort of meetings um, in Wales, in, in particular, for some reason, um, where 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 where, where the, the the sort of conservative representative is is talking, you know, when 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 they say penis, they go all go, oh, they all start laughing. Um, and there's something rather weird about the conservative obsession with this issue, but but as you, as you suggest, Tim, it's it's not one that that the British public really shares, and it and and it's just more accepting as you as you suggest. So so maybe the fact that they've become more kind of um, culture warriors within within the party, and they think this is what we like to talk about. Therefore, it's something we can get other people to talk about, and we can embarrass. Keir Starmer because he doesn't know, you know, whether a woman's got a penis or not, um, and they like to do that quite a lot. Um, that actually, it might take them down the wrong, the wrong path, and yeah, it's yeah. something that may 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 rebound to Labour's advantage. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, on that issue in the, in the short term, and I think in the longer term, um, what I would say is that I think it will be quite dangerous for the Conservative Party to travel too far down um, that populist radical right road because you know they are operating in a country that's becoming more multi-ethnic, uh, you know, more multicultural, becoming more socially liberal over time as, you know, higher education um, expands and, you know, covers more of the population. Uh, and, and quite frankly, I think, you know, in, in the long term, that road is a bit of a dead end for them, but it is a big temptation because, as you say, it, it's a, those are the kinds of issues that they feel strongly about. Um, uh, I'm not so sure that the British public agree with them. Well, sort of, if the British public can't be asked and, you know, more power to them to care that much about these, you know, <laughs> cultural issues that for the most part don't affect them. Um, shall we end by pivoting back to the economic point that you brought up, Tim, and particularly about the revival of a Thatcherite economics um, within the Tory party and the implications of that and how that squares with the opinion of a British public, which seems to, at this point, have come to a belief that the government has been underinvesting in in the, in the social services and, and, you know, the actual investment of the state, um, you know, over the past years of the, um, of the conservative government. And whether there is going to be, outside of the sort of hardcore Tory base who's never going to vote for anyone but a conservative, much purchase to a Thatcherite message in the upcoming election, given years of austerity. No, I think you're right. And I think in some ways this is where the election will be fought and, you know, it will be the um, ground on which Labour would like to fight it. I think, you know, if we're going back to um, historical patterns and and, and you two are the historians, obviously, um, you know, what you do see from uh, you know, long periods of conservative government is, as you put it, underinvestment in the public services. I mean, that is the pattern. Um, you know, for example, the NHS is uh, quote unquote always safe in their hands, but not enough money is spent on it. Um, and so, you know, by the time these kind of change elections happen, you can see there is a kind of thermostatic response on the part of the electorate. Uh, and you know they they want more money spent. They realise that these crucial public services are crumbling, and they just don't believe that the Conservatives are going to um, make the you know the, the investment in them that, that is badly needed. And they do trust Labour and um, whatever they think of Labour to do that. The only downside for Labour is that they have to reassure people. And I guess this is what Rachel Reeves is all about at the moment, the Shadow Chancellor, that 
you know, Labour is is still actually going to be, you know, a reasonably good manager uh, of people's money at the same time as actually prioritising investment in in those crucial public services. Well, on that on that um, relatively optimistic note, um, it's probably a good idea to to end this very interesting um, discussion and to to thank Tim. Um, for participating in it and uh, good luck with the book and I would strongly recommend anyone that wants to know what's been going on in the Conservative Party since Brexit uh, do buy that book and I will be buying it it'll be going with the copy that I've got which I'm now waving which you can't see uh, to go with Tim's previous book about the Tories so um, so thank, thank you Tim yes thanks so much for coming on Tim thanks very much I really enjoyed it <laughs>